Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. And welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey, along with... Pedro Bale, your theoretical co-host, yeah. Yeah. But I'm in New Zealand, so I'm Peter Bale at the moment. Peter Bale in Hoon Bay. It's great to see you, Peter. How are you? I'm pretty good, Bernard. Did you know that just outside our, well, near you and certainly right outside my front window, there have been dolphins three times this week, and I've missed every single time them going up and down. And they apparently come in on the rising tide go towards Point Chevalier and have a little nap. Allegedly, they have a nap. I think they just go and eat everything in Point Chevalier and then you know, possibly in cafes and have a um, whatever <laughs> dolphins right. have. Flat fluffy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, go up. But they're so beautiful, and I've, I've been kind of missing them. But, you know, yeah. how are you getting on? Really well. Uh, we are um, heading towards summer. I can feel the days lengthening, and I'm a bit of a rugby tragic, so I'm gearing up oh for Rugby World Cup. I suspect that's going to uh, crimp my. I don't have much of a social life, but um, it's it's going to be. I'm I'm excited. You're, you're, you've got the least social. Wait, apart from seeing me from time to time. You've mm. got the least social life of anybody I know. Yeah, more or less. no, my social activity this week was interviewing the prime minister. Oh. Well, he's a nice chap. He is actually. I, I, I've got a lot of time for Chris Hipkins mm-hmm. for a bunch of reasons. I've known him for a while in Parliament, and I know people who've worked with him closely and around him. And um, those people who have spent most time with him really like him, and it's the reason yeah. he he was, you know, oh, he's high his likability index compared to you know who the other Christopher. But carry on. And uh, so he was He was very welcome as the new leader of the Labour Party. But, you know, he's been there upwards of uh, seven months now. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the decision, the so-called captain's call to yep. rule out a wealth tax for all time, I think has genuinely disrupted uh, some of that good vibes within the Labour Party. And I think I mentioned last week that uh, that decision designed to take the air out of the debate on wealth tax and capital gains tax, also took the air of the yep. Labour Party's. And we've seen the results, I think, of of that partly with the polls this week. We've had a bunch of polls uh, from Stephen Mills and also the new stuff poll and the Roy Morgan poll all showing mm-hmm. Labour at or below 30 percentage points. And although at the moment with Winston at five and a half percent or so, it looks like he could uh, hold the balance of power, and uh, we'll see or how that James goes. Shaw. Well, the thing about, and I've said this before, that the Greens will always go with Labour, so that they actually don't have any leverage, and mm, mm. that's um, going to well, res- well we'll talk them. about that with Catherine when we see, when mm. we see just how far National has gone away from it. Yeah, yeah. But what what uh, I was really struck with, uh, I, I was. Driving down Ponsonby Road today, and just noticed a very sweet, you know, picture of you know we're in it for you with Chris Hipkins there. Mm. Um, they're not really cutting through, are they? No, as, a, as and, we say. Yeah, it's a stupid and, phrase, actually. I apologise. And, and the, one of the ways that I try to measure or think about how the public is reacting to all of this is 
back to uh, first principles, which is that we have a housing market with bits tacked on for an economy. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing in the open homes, the auction houses, first home, uh, first home buyers, talking to mortgage brokers, is that the mood in the housing market is, oh, national could win. And my view is that when that happens, if it's a clear win on October the 14th, the very next day, land prices rise 20% overnight. And so people are starting to get slightly warm and uh, the so-called FOMO, fear of, of missing out, is starting to return to the market. Mm. The FOOP, the fear of overpaying, is pretty much gone. And yes. uh, we are seeing the vibes warming up in the economy, not just uh, in the housing market, market, but also in business confidence. Well, Bernard, two, is, we, I think we know also that, that you know, two million is not that high. It'll pull, two million will pull all boats up. Mm. Even exactly. slightly less than two million, yeah. And there'll be a bunch of people who were going to price their house at one point eight, who put it up to two to get it into the, <laughs> get it into the foreign buyers uh, category if National get in. So that that's another measure of people starting to expect a change of government. I think, mm -hmm. a and you know, there's a lot of licking of lips going on, and you can start to see it in the way that. Farmers, for example, have have reacted in recent months to the prospects of Hewaka Ekanoa. They've essentially dumped labour, thinking, right, uh, they're going to lose anyway. We must just wait wait this out and get the yep, government and we buy want. another double cab ute and another another jet boat. Yep. Bernard, may I ask you just uh, just before we go to Catherine, because you know we, we, you mentioned you mentioned a housing market with an economy or a military attached. Uh, we're oh, going to yeah. talk about China quite a bit today, which because we've discovered that that is in fact a housing market. Bernard, what were the two or three things that Chris Hitkins said to you that were most impactful beyond the horse race? Uh, firstly, that I think he's going to announce an extension of Kangaroo's build program. In the budget, uh, they only said there was going to be one year of building at the current rate of about 3,000 homes a year. Mm -hmm. So what I think is going to happen is that there's going to be another couple of years added on. He was very uh, keen on pushing the Labor we're building state houses for the first time and or the fastest rate in 50 mm -hmm. years. Secondly, I think he is prepared to throw National under the bus what? with its support uh, yeah. <laughs> with its support of the uh, value capture uplift idea. So this is where uh, councils and the government essentially uh, claw back some of the capital gains from uh, the benefits of rezoning and investing in a certain area. So let's say you own a whole bunch of land around a prospective oh, yes. train station yep, yep. and the value of that land goes up for no good reason other than someone drew a new line on the map or the government invested a lot of money. And the way that works is you'd have a targeted rate which collects some of that capital gain mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that land bankers would otherwise have won. And what else, Bernard? Because I know somebody on this call watching our podcast right now who is close to Kayangora will be very pleased that you know they're going to get accelerated and turbocharged. Well, it very much depends on who wins the election because I think the also absolute heard, opposite might happen. Yes, yeah, because uh, national, if they get in, they're definitely stopping building of by Kongo Ora and very keen to push any government money out to community groups. Yeah. and we heard from Chris Bishop in the last week or so. He was asked about Kongo Ora and. Uh, whether any of the people at Kangaroo were likely to lose his job. And his immediate response was, I hope so. And yes. Well, I reported that to the person that we're both thinking of. And and 
Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's a few nervous people at Congola yeah, awaiting be. the yeah. results. And yeah. in fact, the whole country, I think, is a bit on tenterhooks now because. So, Bernard, just the, you, wait a second. Tam, what, what else? You said you got you, you, he was going to do the uplift tax. What, what else? Yeah. So he essentially is saying that he would call that uplift tax a land tax. And that effectively means any hope of a bipartisan agreement to get that through is gone. Mm -hmm. And Labor itself in the past at times has talked about using value capture. He's ruled that out. And you can sense that um, he's really put his lot in with landowners because Chris one, of his, has. Yeah, one of his arguments against wealth tax is that you'd have a, a capital flight. A whole bunch of foreign owners mm -hmm. would leave the country. Well, A, we know that in terms of residential property, there is not that higher percentage of properties owned by foreign investors. And secondly, people buy a home here and put people in it or they leave it empty. They're very unlikely to leave the country and take their capital with them. It's not an easy thing to do. And it really is um, a pretty weak argument against mm. um, those sorts of things. In, in emphasizing the Kangora thing, though, Bernard, I mean, because I know you have a theory which which we've discussed that you, that that uh, Kangora's houses actually increase value rather than decrease value, which is usually what mm. the grumpy the grumpy South Africans in um, in botany say. But do people who live in Kangora homes get out and vote, or do people who own homes around them get out and vote? Well, that's the thing. If you're the government or the opposition, you want potential swing voters, and there's no point in pandering to your, or the people who are already going to vote for you. Oh, what I see. You, what you need is the people who might vote for you or vote for the opposition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of swing voters in that median voter territory. And we know the demographics are that they tend to be aged between 40 and 70. They tend to be living in their own standalone suburban homes in the outer suburbs of the big cities and the main provincial cities. They tend to dream of uh, having their kids own a very similar home. They don't like uh, medium density. They don't mm -hmm. like apartments. And they don't like other people not like them living near them. And so the whole kind of rural build program is poking the bear there and just about in every town and city where Kyngal Aura have announced or um, have plans to build usually medium density, um, lots of homes, there are immediate public opposition to those plans. And it's not just Kyngal Aura. This week we learned that a 72-apartment project in Beachhaven in Auckland, mm. which complied with the new medium density residential Absolutely standards, yes, was blocked by um, the NIMBYs. councils. The NIMBYs won again. And um, it's pretty frustrating, actually, to, to know that a good chunk of New Zealand, like migration, often ask the government to allow more people to come in, but yep. then refuse to allow the houses to be built for Absolutely. those people. Bernard, you're turning this into a housing conversation. Oh, yeah. Now, what else, what else did Chris Hipkin say that you thought was really oh. interesting? Quickly before you, before Catherine gets so bored that she melts. <laughs> There's nothing boring about housing, but uh, climate's pretty important at the moment. Uh, on the climate side, he was as non-committal and careful not to put himself in a position of being uh, accused of missing a target. Labor, I think, have put off the hard decisions on climate until after the election, hoping that they can get elected first. National, to be frank, aren't even bothering with that. Um, we've seen this week um, announcements on climate, which mm -hmm. call into question their oh, commitment. Are you to doing the Paris a segue? Agreement. 
I'm pretty Jesus, good at Jesus, there you go. <laughs> signal, signal. Yeah, yeah. So let's throw that then to uh, Catherine Dyer, our climate oh, correspondent for the Kaka. Smooth as silk, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catherine, uh, we had this policy out from National this week and some commentary around National's commitment or lack thereof to the uh, 2030 target we'd all signed up to at the Paris Agreement. Um, what, what did you make of uh, National's announcements this week? To be honest, I think both Labour and National are punting decisions out further and defunding options that would help to help us to achieve those 2030 targets. So uh, their ability to actually achieve them is looking less and less mm. possible now. In fact, I'd say, you know, based on their stated policies, it's not going to be possible. Um, but they still keep saying, oh, we're committed to the Paris Agreement yeah, targets. So, yeah, my view is if, if your committed other looks at you, the way that National and Labour look at the Paris Agreement targets, you better get a lawyer. Oh, that's quite good. You, we, can use that, we can use that, that meme of the chap with yeah. his girlfriend. Yeah, right. Those okay. are some cheap knives. <laughs> exactly. And actually, um, uh, the lack of commitment from Christopher Luxon this week, Mark Dalder at our Newsroom, has been scratching away at this one. And tried to get Christopher Luxon to commit National to meeting those 2030 targets. By the way, this is a, an international, a piece of pseudo-international law which both parties have signed up to, and now we're getting close to 2030. Remember, we're only seven years away. People are starting to get a little bit itchy. Where is Christopher Luxon on this? That's where? Silent. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Oh, God. Jesus, the talent that's being revealed here today is just... It's a dead air, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's the issue. He initially yeah. said something like, uh, are you committed to the Paris Agreement? He said, yeah, I like oh, the 2051. Yeah. 2050 looks good, and then Mark helpfully pointed out, actually, the real target, the one that actually has some meaning, is 2030. And on current trajectories, Treasury reckons we might have a liability there of over $20 billion. That was one of the questions I asked Hipkins is, um, you know, why doesn't – the Crown and the Treasury own up to this and put it into the accounts as a proper liability. And uh, this will be interesting to see whether Christopher Hipkins uh, actually is nailed down in the campaign. Yeah. Well, Bernard, I, Bernard and Catherine, I think something's going on here through their focus groups, both of both sides. And there was a very good story from Europe this week about the um, a senior person in the European Parliament saying that essentially there's a huge populist shift against anything green. And you've seen this in the UK with the, um, you know, a conservative policy about ultra low emission vehicles has been turned by the by the conservatives into a weapon to attack the Labour Party. People are going to get really pissed off about, or they are getting really pissed because they, because it's come real, whether it's heat pumps, it's cars, it's pollution. And I'm sure that Labour's uh, focus groups and Nationals focus groups mm. are saying, keep pushing on this button, pretend to be committed, but don't really be committed, and they're not. There's actually, there was an Ipsos poll done, survey done here, I think it was in field in May, and the results came out in June, and they came back saying something like 30, 31% of New Zealanders agreed that now wasn't a good time to spend money on climate action during is. a cost yep. of living crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and what they also found in that poll is that a lot of New Zealanders don't have a very good understanding of what kind of climate action is effective at either a personal or at a national level. And so that kind of opens it up for the government to say, oh, we're committed to the targets, 
bullshit, 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 while not actually doing any of the Sorry, things that get us Sorry, we don't use that word on this podcast. Oh, this, is a fam- this is a family podcast. We say bollocks, <laughs> not bullshit. Right? Bollocks, okay. Um, but, you know, the, they can they can do that and people will go along with it because they don't really know what to call them out on. You know, mm. what, are the, no, what are the no. actions that actually matter? So I think they've figured this out for the election. I think this is the new co-governance. This is the new co-governance <laughs> dispute is going to be, oh, we can't do anything because, you know, China's just going to open another power station. And whatever mm. New Zealand does is ridiculous. I, I just and the you will have seen that story today about the uh, extraordinary ex- what appears to be an acceleration of the rate of um, warming in Antarctica because there's this strange polarity going on, and uh, you know we, we we you know we are relatively close to Antarctica. Yeah, actually, yeah. Catherine, that's a great segue. Um, oh, ex- accidentally, <laughs> Jesus, smooth as silk. Well, accidentally, into, it was bloody deliberate. This, yeah, <laughs> into this um, story about Antarctica. Tell us, uh, Catherine, what, what you've learned on on what's behind that story. Yeah, there was an article. It was on the front page of the Guardian for a while today. Um, mm. But yeah, it was a study done, and it was an ice core study done in Antarctica, and they were basically saying, oh, it confirms that there's polar amplification, as in the poles, and and this includes Antarctica and West Antarctica in particular, are warming at least twice as fast as the rest of the world. Now, I was kind of looking at that thinking, I thought we already knew that. Um, There are parts of the Arctic and Antarctica that are warming five times faster than the, the rest of the world average. The bit that I didn't know is that Warming is twenty to fifty percent larger than the climate model predictions, so it's not yeah. in the models mm, exactly, and that's the critical bit because mm. that implies that these these feedback loops for climate amplification they're not being properly calculated in the models; they're under representing them or undercooking them, um, and that's worrying because the poles are where the ices are very important stabilizing parts of the global climate system, and so that implies a lot more unforeseen mm-hmm. destabilization in the climate. So one of them is more abrupt sea level rise. Um, and the other one is we talked about the AMOC a few weeks ago. And, you know, well, there's one of those in the Antarctic region as well, or that begins there, a sort of overturning um, ocean circulation system. And there was a study out a few weeks ago that, that said that that has a high chance of collapsing in the middle parts of the century, which is not very far away. And that was also very understudied compared to the AMOC, as is Antarctica versus the Arctic. And so it's not really clear what all the impact mm. of that would be, but it's quite close to us, so that makes me feel a little bit nervous. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I'm just struck. One of our one of our listeners, Jonathan Getty, says mentioned that you know the Arctic is warming faster than Antarctica, and that's of course true. But one of the critical aspects is that the Arctic is already floating. You know, yes. so the we, the Arctic does not have the same contribution to to sea level rise as the Antarctic. But as you remove the ice above the sea, the the reflective uh, or the albedo. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, We've talked about albedo. Albedo is too sexy a word for you to be using. So what it means is you get more absorption of heat by the ocean, which heats up the ocean, which means you know. Uh, Of course, but Mm. the the critical one for the huge dynamic increase and shift is Antarctica. So I totally agree, Jonathan, that it's. the Arctic may be, may be warming more more uh, aggressively. But also, did I see a story today, Catherine, that there are only something like nine uh, climate stations on the Antarctic? Yeah, I'm not sure actually how many there are, but I don't, I don't think it's even so much. I mean, it's, it's 
difficult and expensive to do research mm. in Antarctica, obviously, um, just getting the people there. In case 20, you... Sorry, 23 permanent weather stations. Yeah. Oh, yes, the ones that are calculating. Yeah. The, that's yeah. why they needed to look at the ice cores because there aren't enough exactly. weather stations and they haven't been there for long enough to be able to capture some of the, the finer points of what's going on. So they have mm. to do it through ice core research. So... Yeah, that's yeah. that's and also the thing about the difference in the warming, Arctic versus Antarctic. My understanding is that the warming wasn't showing up in Antarctica for a whole lot of very complex reasons. That doesn't mean that it isn't happening, just that it isn't showing up in the same ways and, and it seems like there's more likelihood that it could appear quite suddenly, as it has mm. done this year, in terms of the amount of ice melt that we've seen you know, over the last year has been astronomical. On that issue of um, sudden changes and oh, the, the need clunky to, segue coming. Yeah, the, the need to think about how our economy is going to change in a world of uh, climate change, one of the really interesting things about all of the scenarios we have around the IPCC and how we get to one and a half degrees or even two degrees there's a lot of assumptions around mm. the relationship between GDP growth and climate emissions. And the assumption is that we will be able to decouple GDP growth and climate emissions. So we'll be able to keep growing at the same time as reducing emissions. Now, in the past, we haven't done that. There's a very close relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is we'll find some technology or we'll start doing things differently in a way that decouples. There has been some decoupling in recent yep. years, but Catherine, a paper has come out this week which points out the sort of obvious, which is if we're going to get anywhere near one and a half to two degrees, the scale of the decoupling is going to be enormous. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's the speed of it that they're talking about. So there has been some both relative and absolute decoupling, particularly in wealthier countries. And it's not difficult to understand why that might be and also why it might be tricky to get that to happen at scale very quickly. Mm -hmm. And what this paper was saying is that the speed at which you know any of the decoupling we've seen so far it would have to get 10 times quicker at least by 2025 now you can imagine that we'll be able to accelerate decoupling because a lot of new technologies when they come along they take a long time early on to get going and then they suddenly take off and get a lot faster very quickly yeah. certainly some of that's probably going to happen but it's also the case that new technologies, we've been working on this for 30 years now. It's already been quite a long time. The idea that we're going to um, make it go 10 times faster by 2025, well, that's a pretty big ask. What do we call that? But what's that phrase, Bernard? Is it magical thinking? Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah. I'm curious to know what would the technologies that we'd need to do the scale, the decoupling that we'd need? I mean, you have to you have to get off fossil fuels altogether, right? That's absolute. That's emissions decoupling. And there's a couple of different ways that people talk about decoupling as well. Sometimes they talk about decoupling CO2 emissions from GDP, and other times they look more broadly at material throughput. Mm -hmm. And there's no way you're going to decouple material throughput from GDP. You know, really, if you're going to get anything likely, it's by looking purely just at um, – at emissions. In fact, the material throughput is likely to increase a lot in the future because we're ha having to mine a lot of new types of minerals and you know all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's certainly not going to happen. But it's really difficult to see how you get absolute decoupling in any kind of a timeline that we're looking at. You know, that means replacing, moving 
I don't know what you're going to move to entirely electricity or hydrogen or you know any of those other problematic. Well, we're going to we're going to move. You know, to, I was talking to somebody at one of the big tech companies this week, and he said I can't possibly comment about him taking over the TY point. Um, the three-pin plug at the ty at ty point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this, this is the thing when you look data at center. the uh, yeah when you look at the the mechanics of actually decoupling and changing the scale of the change and the types of technology to do it properly and reach the targets we're at are just mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And it's the speed that we have to do it that really is uh, yeah, sort of so scary. Yeah, so China's probably going to have to do it, which is a, is that a good segue to you-know-who? Oh, very good. And can I just point out <laughs> Thank that, you very that, much, Catherine. Great see you, Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> Professor, Professor Robert seems to be on a, on a shirt only, which means that the climate change has, has already reached Dunedin because he's taken off his tweed jacket has. with the... with the have, have you got leather elbow patches on your tweed jacket? No, like I haven't a got a tweed jacket on. No, actually. I know, but normally, do you actually have leather, le- uh, leather oh, patches? I'm sorry to let the side down. No, no. So you're not just a sexy geography teacher then? Well, you haven't got a sexy not geography, geography teacher. Geography teacher. Or you're right. a sexy uh, professor of international affairs. Well, that's how I like to whip up the rumours, but I know whether they're believed or not is another matter. <laughs> so, Robert, we, we're just talking about China and the speed of China's change, and and Bernard and I had a conversation before you came on, and and before Catherine came on that. Um, he was being Anne-Marie Brady and I was being um, Richard Nixon or Henry Kissinger and saying that we really need to engage with China much more. And Bernard was saying, no, no, they're a bunch of um, you know rapacious rotters with the Chinese Communist Party. We're, we're, do you want to talk about where the, where the Chinese economy is going, That's Robert? That's a broad characterization, to, but it's, I'll let it fly. <laughs> are we asking you to go stretch out your wings too far? No. Um, I, I, what I would say is those two scenarios between Anne-Marie Brady and Richard Nixon or Dr. Henry Kissinger, I think China's capable of both at present. And to some degree, it would depend on the policies selected by not just the United States, but countries like New Zealand, Australia, and many others, which may tip China one way or the other. Mm. Um, I think there are people in the Chinese leadership who don't necessarily agree with the current direction of travel. Um, but it, it is it's a very formidable challenge how to frame a policy which moderates the policies of an authoritarian state mm. like China, which doesn't tolerate compromise at home, doesn't tolerate domestic opposition at home, and if possible, likes to proceed on the old Leninist maxim that if you encounter much and you've got steel in your hand, keep going. And if you encounter steel, draw back. So mm. we've got to get the combination right. Mm. And uh, I think the Jacinda Ardern, also the Christopher Hipkins approach, has been not to take a backward step on key principles, but to leave the door open for discussions and not to pigeonhole China with Russia. I still think a lot will depend on the outcome of the Ukraine conflict mm-hmm. in terms of China's stance. And I still think there's a lot of wisdom in trying to support Ukraine as best we can to bring about the decisive defeat of Mr. Putin, because I do think that could, in a sense, energize precautionary influences within China. Robert, we do the segues here. You're not allowed to segue off to Ukraine just yet. That was very good. Um, It was a pretty good one, though. (laughs) can I just one of the interesting things this week was the Ministry of State Security in China talking about and and she following up from a she speech talking about the United States trying to contain 
do, doing a containment strategy on China while also pretending to do engagement. And I thought you would be the perfect person to explain to our audience, many of whom are not boomers like us. Well, actually, you might not even be a boomer. You're, you know, you're probably much younger. But George F. Kennan and the containment mm. strategy against the Soviet Union. Uh, which prevailed from what about 1946? Well, I can't remember yeah. when he wrote the long telegram until you know at 1989. There's a bit very different approach, isn't there, to, towards trying to contain China? Yes, because the world's very different. It's not that I mean, in this in the context in which Kennan's recommendation of containment was accepted, uh, there was clearly two major dominant powers after the Second World War with Britain in decline. And they were the United States, which was economically head and shoulders above everyone else and also militarily very strong, and the Soviet Union, which was economically devastated by the Second World War and lost 27 million of its population, but had the strongest army in, in Europe mm. and saw itself set to influence affairs there. So these two countries glowered at, at each other across a devastated Europe Mm -hmm. And you could say those two countries had a good chance of shaping the direction of world politics. The big difference in the 21st century is, and why containment becomes problematic, and uh, Mr. Obama made this point, is that China and the United States do not have the world to themselves in the way that the United States mm -hmm. and the Soviet Union did immediately after the Second World War. And in fact, the number of problems that great powers can't solve have multiplied. And so it's not that they're weaker. It's just that their sense of autonomy in an increasingly interconnected world yeah. has diminished, and also, uh, Robert. I mean, we're going to this. This is a segue coming. I'm just is um, there's a huge economic aspect to this. China is just too deeply engaged in the globalized world economy. Yeah. China was the reason we globalized. I think we've talked about this possibly before. When I was the Evening Post's trade correspondent in about 1873, it was all about you know <laughs> New Zealanders were listening to. You know, New Zealand business leaders were talking about globalization and why we had to yeah. uh, have competitive advantage and do whatever was good. A huge amount of that is because we shifted everything to including China. You know, we took a billion, that process took a billion people out of poverty. China's mm. too deeply engaged in the world economy to, um, to, be, to be contained, surely. Yes, I, I think that there's two aspects to that, Peter. You're quite right. In a sense, the West helped make China a superpower. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, New Zealand sponsored uh, China's admission to the WTO with enthusiastic mm -hmm. support from the United States at the time. And um, the, the assumption was, as Kurt Campbell has pointed out, uh, somewhat disappointingly in his case, I mean, he was disappointed about it, that China didn't live up to our liberal expectations, that China mm. would somehow become liberalized by the process of participating in the interconnected global market economy, mm. but that hasn't quite worked out as we expected. Nevertheless, the points you're making are really important. China is constrained. You know, it, it, lots of people keep saying China's a revisionist power, mm. but there are real, very real limits to how much China can revise the economic environment, which they've done so well out of, without incurring huge problems at home. And uh, yeah, and, and the other thing is, of course, lots of countries which have no truck with authoritarianism are nevertheless have very close trade relations with China. Absolutely. So it's a two-way constraint, really. Mm. And it's interesting. This week, we saw um, how even the most powerful company in the world, Apple, can be affected 
by a decision made inside China. So the big news in the world of, uh, I think, geopolitics, but also corporate news, was the Chinese government's announcement that its own officials and then the the people working for state-owned companies in China would n- not be allowed to use Apple iPhones. And this is uh, a big deal in China because Apple... Actually, well, they're Apple, made in China most of them well, as well. Well, there's that. Yeah. But, also, but also, they have a 40 to 50% market share of the... Um, the more expensive smartphone market, which sort of somewhat surprising, given um, uh, the home of the you know the Android phones was was very much the Chinese manufacturers, the Huawei's and the likes. And this week, Huawei managed to produce its own smartphone using the very latest of the um, mm. semiconductor chips, which surprised everyone. It was very early. It was. Not quite that moment, and whenever it was, nineteen fifty-one, whenever when the Russians <laughs> blew, uh, exploded their first atomic bomb. But this is this is a real surprise that the Chinese were able to apparently get hold of the latest semiconductor stuff. And what we saw was Apple share price dropped two hundred billion dollars this week because yeah, still some, leaving it at eight hundred billion. Oh yeah, you know, market but, cap. But yeah, mm. but but that interconnection, as Robert says, is a two-way street, and for a lot of companies now. They are pushing back a bit at uh, America's attempt at containment. NVIDIA, for example, now one of the top 10 most valuable companies that no one's ever heard of but is is booming because of the AI chip drive, is coming back to the US government and saying, hey – you know, I know what you're trying to do yeah. here, but actually, we want to keep trading with China, and we yeah. want to sell our chips there, and they want to buy our chips and all sorts of things. So, I think you're right that the initial attempts to contain China backfired a bit, particularly with corporate America and the global corporates. Who, sure, they're they're frustrated that they haven't been able to get into China in their own right. Some of them are being felt ripped off. They felt like that China has very much seen the whole globalization project as actually a project at building up a manufacturing built economy and haven't uh, engaged properly, i.e. allowed foreign capital in or um, really allowed free trade. But still, the connections are too strong to just try to pull apart easily. And that that will be the, the thing to see whether... If there is a change of U.S. government, how that clash goes on between big tech and Trump, if he's the president? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, well, that's 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 quite a big canvas for you to cover now. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and the question well, was, me, yeah, let me humbly make an attempt. <laughs> sure. um, the I I think that you you know Burns made some excellent points, and the one that thing that really strikes me is that Mr. Trump did try to urge American business to decouple, and he was given very short shrift indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Wall Street and uh, many other commentators, but also particularly by companies like uh, Apple and, and, and Google at the time. So I, I don't think um, a, uh, Mr. Trump making it back to the, the White House will change that reality. And the other thing here is that many American companies, and they're quite candid if you speak to them about this, they are worried that if they would decouple what would stop the Europeans or the Japanese getting an even bigger market share? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all very well urging American companies to decouple, but um, given the no- nature of interconnectedness between China and much of the global market world, if you want to put it that way, or the global market economies, 
um, there's plenty of other companies in the Western world that happily step in. Yes, although also then, Robert, you get this kind of economic colonialism that's going on at the moment where the, you know, I think we all know that, uh, well, we don't possibly, but, you know, the Dutch company ASML makes the machines that you can do the lithography on for these, for the chips. Um, TSMC in Taiwan makes the chips. Arm in the UK, which is about to float uh, for SoftBank at about $60 billion. It makes the Android chips and makes and design. Sorry, designs yeah. the Android chips and so on, and designs all the best chips from the ones that aren't made by Nvidia. This is a really. Uh, it's it's all it's like it's, it reminds me of. In fact, maybe this is what you could say about your role as a as a professor of international affairs. It's a little bit like trying to limit the great game. You know, the, the access to the oil fields of um, Persia or Kazakhstan in the late 19th century, early 20th century. You know, they're trying to limit the access of China to the to the next most important economic development. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's a bit of a futile struggle. As Mr. Obama said, China's too big to contain. It's too integrated with the rest mm. of the world economically. And in addition, uh, the you know the the fortunes of the world don't just hinge on China and the United States. There's lots of other economies coming up rapidly, and um, of course they are head and shoulders above everyone else at the moment. But things are changing quite rapidly, and yeah, I mean it, it, it's I, I I do think the challenge for the United States is to frame a policy which doesn't play into China's hands, which doesn't give them give the hardliners in China. The chance to trumpet that they're faced with a new Cold War, mm. which they relish, of course, uh, but actually is much more nuanced and actually Absolutely. puts pressures on the hardliners and empowers the moderates. And Robert, I was really struck by I, in, I put into my spin-off thing this week. Um, which if, if those of the people who don't know, I do a weekly thing for the spin-off, which you should absolutely subscribe to. But um, uh, there's a Pew Research Report, which is a wonderful organization, but 82% of Americans have a negative view of China. And so that's presumably what's driving a lot of the politics in this. Um, Robert, what do you make? You've got G20 this week in uh, in India. What do you make about Xi not turning up? Well, it's a continuation of a long-running row between India and China. Those two countries, of course, had a pretty fierce border war back in 1962, and they've had very unsettled border relations since then. They had, a, as we discussed before, they had a quite a brief but violent conflict not so long ago in the Himalayas. And I think the Chinese leadership doesn't want to give Mr. Modi any more exposure than it has to. And uh, I think uh, it, it seems to be that this is a snub. I mean, it's, and it's very difficult to interpret any other way. Mm. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to watch that this weekend. No Putin, no Xi. And India standing up on the global stage and apparently about to change the name of the country, it seems. Well, uh, no, no, no. It is <laughs> it is India Bharat, Bharat. Right. That is one of the two, in fact, three official names. But under the Indian constitution, it was only uh, given, it only just, they only decided on the two, which was India and Bharat. Bharat. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But he's, he's definitely emphasizing the uh, Hindu version, Bharat. Jos Josie, it's fantastic to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. We're just we're just discussing Hi, the G20 at the moment, Josie. I mean, oh, I was thinking good. actually that we, uh, I was going to ask Robert because I have asked him occasionally how he puts all of this to his students, and we treat Robert often in this podcast as an oracle, as we treat you as an. We see you as an oracle as well, but we. I feel sometimes that. <laughs> 
we we ask Robert to expand his thinking from everything from uh, uranium-tipped ammunition in Ukraine to um, you know, um, fix or float. I want to know what Robert thinks about yeah. fix or float. <laughs> <laughs> but Robert, what do you do? Do you find in your professional life at the moment that, apart from coming on podcasts with us, that you have to think which about, is a pleasure, which is think, and it's, it's a, an you. incredible. We love you too. Um, that it, um, you just have to stretch yourself more than you would have, say, five or six years ago, or is that just me underestimating what they were doing five or six years ago? I think everybody is racing to keep up. Um, I think what is timeless, however, are analytical insights mm-hmm. and tools that you can use to do so. And um, yeah, I mean, it is a struggle. And I, I think all of us are constantly ch- up against that challenge, not just academics, but everyone, decision makers, policy makers, policy advisors, uh, journalists, everyone. The pace of change is you know, really fast. And one thing that really strikes me was that you may recall at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was lots of informed speculation that globalization was over, that we'd entered the yeah. age of the lockdown, the garrison state. It was, you know, the Westphalian state returning with a vengeance. But in fact, we now know three years later that actually COVID-19 um, actually unleashed a new surge in globalization, mm. um, you know, uh, technology, I mean, digital technology was turbocharged with Zoom, um, you know, Microsoft Teams, all the rest of it that we've actually come to take for granted. And But actually, you know, it doesn't seem to be any end in sight. We're now moving towards artificial intelligence. Uh, a few months ago, myself and my colleagues in the department I'm in, we were talking about how we should handle this with students. Mm-hmm. But And we, we reached the consensus amongst 11 academics that actually – we shouldn't try and ban it. You shouldn't try and deny it because students are going to use it anyway. But what you try and do is put in place uh, some some qualitative checks to make sure that AI isn't completely answering mm-hmm. the essay for them or or doing the work for them. And that's that's quite tricky, but it, it's possible. That's an interesting um, point. You know how we all thought this is the end of globalization, and certainly there's a rise of protectionism and a rise of, oh, sure. of kind of um, you know nationalism, if you like, kind of not just buy American or buy British, but make American, make British. And, um, and and we're suffering from that probably in New Zealand. But the interesting thing is it was it was Larry Summers, I think, who, who kind of came up with the G20 idea, wasn't it? He When mm. he was um, US um, treasurer. And he, he, I heard him say this was last year where people were going to the end of globalization, the end of globalization. And he, he said, look, yeah, if you go to your butcher mm-hmm. and he's got no beef, the answer is not to go buy your own cow. You know, you find another source for your beef. So the idea that we would suddenly just make everything ourselves, you know, in country, even a country like the US, even a country like, you know, the UK, was just crazy, you know. With USDA, 30, 36 ounces of USDA steak. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think, what was it? Yeah, the, the, the news of my death is um, premature, I think, in terms of globalisation. It's... Uh, it's as you say. It's a it's a new, and even even people who've been anti globalization have been very um, kind of muscular about saying we need to reform globalization, make yeah. sure many, not the few, benefit. The alternative is not very is not very attractive. Yeah, the alternative is is buy your own cow. 
which <laughs> we're not going to yeah. do. Look, I'm not going to well, do. We've got. We might have some for sale, and I know Ireland certainly does. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise Elon Musk's going to have to rescue them all because he's extremely concerned with Ireland having to kill about twenty percent of it. I mean, it's just bullshit. Sorry, I, we, I, I'm picking up you bad language from our. That's, that's, I'm picking up bad language from our colleague. Uh, that's Catherine a five hundred euro note in the, in the in the in the in the tin. Do not pass go. Yeah, <laughs> Robert, do you want to stay with us? Sure, as long Thank as you, you feel like it, because. You know, you occasionally you're a mind expanding man, and yes. we think you're absolutely fabulous. And Thank you. Um, anything you say will be sent back to Otago as a political comment, possibly. <laughs> Not to mention five eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Josie, I really enjoyed your column this week because this is the first week formally of the campaign, so we're starting to get a sense now of how it's shaking out. We're starting to see some, you know, regular polls that are connected to the campaigning as opposed to anything else. What's your sense of, you know, what we're seeing after a week? Well, we had the launches, didn't we, which were interesting, actually. And I tend to sort of think, oh, launches don't really change anybody's votes, like candidate debates, leaders' debates. You know, it's unusual that they do. They do sometimes. We saw that with United and Peter Dunn. We saw it with Jim Anderton once, you know. But um, I thought the launches were interesting. I mean, the, both of them, despite the disruptions, were professional. They managed to get a key idea across. I mean, with Labour, it was, you know, free dental care for under 30s. That was a good kind of granular policy, a bit of edge, a bit of crunch. You know, it was um, almost bordering on a grand cause, Bernard. It was almost something that cut through. And Nationals was very, you know, professional wrestling event, very kind of, in that sense, Trumpian. I'm not criticising them for being Trump-like, but um, it, 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 I did not want to see any of them in leotards. That's all I can say. No, but it, but this is the thing that Trump does. It's very successful, and we should analyse what he does. That's so successful is he creates. He, he he's a fan of professional wrestling. His events oh are very much about professional wrestling. Right? You have mm-hmm. an enemy. You have a a whole bunch of you know fanfare and hoo ha. And Nationals was, you know, very slick, very professional. So I think both parties did themselves justice in terms of their key message and and presenting themselves as professional and competent. But, yeah, the polls, oh, my gosh. I mean, it's interesting. I I was doing a bit of research on this. It's not unusual Mm -hmm. in history for parties to go out of existence. And I remember in 2017 with Labor, we were looking at, people were starting to debate, you know, it's hovering over, you know, 22, 24, whatever it was. And you kind of go, wow, this is, we're kind of back to that position and we kind of think every party sort of picks themselves up when they have a loss. Let's assume Labour lose. But it's not unusual. In our own history, in the 1890s, uh, up into the early, tw- I think it was 1912, the Liberals went out of power, having, having you know, this was Dick Seddon, you know, they were in government. And the party went out of out of existence because the polling dropped so bad. And they mutated into, I think, United, which then mutated into reform, but then mutated into the National Party. So parties reform. So there's, there's no God-given right for a party to exist. And we've seen it in Europe. The socialists in France, at the worst result ever in their entire history in the last election, um, we saw it with, I think, uh, was it PASOK in Greece? Um, mm-hmm. It went out of existence, you know. So there's a, as you say, Robert, before, there's a lot of churn and volatility. There's a lot of change happening in the world at the moment. And politics is no exception. So mm-hmm. the polling is really bad. You know, Labor can do a lot to make it better. 
Really bad. The polling is really bad for whom, Jesse? Oh, for Labour. I mean, they're mm-hmm. hovering mm-hmm. every poll. They're in, you know, 24, 26. They're in the 20. They're in that really critical zone. And the demographics are awful. If you have a look at the Roy Morgan poll this week, I think the thing that really stunned me was when you look at uh, women between the age of 18 to 49, uh, you could call them, I suppose, the soccer mom. Uh, what? Or the netball mom. But what age? 18. 18 to 49. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, go there's on. some very young, young parents <laughs> these days. Um, 18 to 49 women, 20.5% support Labour, 24% support the Greens. So what that yeah. means is that women in the suburbs and the cities are abandoning Labour and going for the Greens. Now, when you look at the men, it's 24 and a half to Labour and 13 to the Greens. So they're not going to the Greens. They are going to national and act. So when you look at 21% of 18 to 14-year-old, 49-year-old men are at uh, uh, 21% support act. So that's not far away from national, and it's not far away from labor. But on the same token, the women are going for the Greens. And I think you're right, uh, Josie, there is a there's some sort of massive dislocation going on in this election. Of the 18-year-old soccer moms are going green. Yep. I totally agree with them at the moment, but yeah, that's a that's a that's Deborah, a Deborah Matheson, who's who she's now um, Keir Starmer's uh, political strategist and pollster in the UK, mm-hmm. and she was she she you know cut her teeth under the Blair government and so on. She's one of the most one of the best pollsters out there. So she she has written a book about this actually that Labour parties parties of the left win when they get the coalition of the different groups right. So they've got the, mm. she calls it the urban liberals are the pioneers, you know, the, the, the change makers. You've got the settlers who are your traditional working class and your prospectors, which are the sort of aspirational lower middle class. Now, Labour wins, as they did under Tony Blair, when they get a coalition of all three groups, settlers, prospectors and pioneers. They lose when they've only got one of those. And at the moment, I think the problem for New Zealand Labour is that they're doing, despite the soccer mums, um, but they're doing, they're kind of going for the urban green vote uh, and they're losing their traditional working class vote. What do you think Labour's, you think Labour's going for the urban green vote? Well, they're certainly not going for the, the, the regional working class vote, Peter. Um, I mean, just look at the policy announcements today. There was, I think it was um, a subsidy for double glazing and, you know, making See, it I, I wonder, actually, Josie, if it's slightly different. And, I, and you're much mm. more experienced in that in this country than I am, despite it being my country too. But My country seems to, is your country, Peter. It seems to, thank you. Thanks for that. It <laughs> seems to me that they've gone so far away from capital gains tax, mm. they're retreating from their environmental things, that they're actually, and, and they failed on various quite important social issues that Jacinda Ardern campaigned on, that they're actually just going to be fighting over the same old scraps with National, and National's got them all. I think you're right, yeah. But what, they, what they've gone for, so I think those are two different um, voter groups, if you like. So the, the, the kind of tax switch support, the, the voters who support a, a tax switch from, you know, cuts to income, more welfare, more wealth taxes, that's more of a working class support. And then you've got the sort of urban liberal you know, your, your EV subsidies, your um, subsidies for making your buildings sustainable, whatever. So, so it, my view is that they have spent the last few years going after the urban green vote mm-hmm. and in some ways, you know, becoming green light. And I know that, I know that you guys... Green light, like, that means go. Have, 
done, <laughs> yeah, they, they haven't done enough on climate change, but but they are certainly, they're, they're more comfortable in the university common room than they are in the smoker room. And and I think most people would oh, agree. That's that, a very, did you put that in the story? I, I think I've used that a few times. I've got Jesus, a few save that one up for, that's I a pity, I like that very <laughs> yeah. much. But, yeah. I, but I think it's true. I mean, that's the thing about cliches that, you know, that they, they're usually true. And yeah. I think that's the problem for Labour is that it's not so much that they've lost the urban liberal vote, I mean, who, who may be disappointed in them, but they're, they're still going to vote Labour or they're going to vote mm. Green. But they've or lost- they're not going to, I mean, I think the other critical problem, Josie, is they're not going to vote. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just I'm very interested in your thoughts about that. Because mm-hmm. you, you're you're pulling that that Keir Starmer person's view from the UK towards here in a class based uh, thing, and of course we don't have a class system well, here because everybody's. Be I know we live in a we, everything is just tickety boo here. We, we, we have we have uh, two classes. Oh, Robert, just in, go on, Robert. You inserted yourself in there. Go for oh, sorry, Robert. Go the difference the electoral system the, the, between the two countries is huge. Mm. I mean, at the moment, the Labour Party in the UK can't even bring themselves to talk about the thing which is rearranging everybody's life, which is Brexit, because mm. Mr. Starmer has calculated that could divide his support. Mm-hmm. So yes. he has to just remain. He has to keep tiptoeing around it. Yeah, Josie's mate thinks he has to maintain it. I, I would argue that, that that might not be enough. So, so Josie, do, what about the people who aren't going to vote? Or how, how does how does Labour, Greens, how do, how do the progressive parties get people out to vote? Because I, I, I rode my bicycle past a Te Pāti Māori event at Oraki uh, Marae the other day, and I thought I might vote Te Pāti Māori, but I think there may be one or two obstacles to that. But carry on. Yes, so... The, yeah, the problem with the Party Māori, I think, is that they focus a little bit too much on the colonial insults of the Thai and less on the colonial insults of Putin. Um, and so I, yes. they've yes. kind of, I think they've, again, I think they're playing to a, a more academic audience than they are to, um, a, you know, um, a Māori voter audience in the regions who are going, have I got a job? <laughs> Or is my job paying yeah. enough? Or can sorry, I? Sorry, so just, just, just. I'm sorry. I, I, I. It was a total digression to mention to Party Maori and of also my ability to vote for them. Too. I was but, just going to say, of course, you'd be on a bicycle, Peter. Yeah, but I'd be covered in. I'd, I'd be covered in incredibly expensive uh, lycra. Oh my God! How <laughs> awful! But yeah. So, Josie, but what, what about getting I mean, D- David Morag, one of our uh, regular leaders, doesn't says he doesn't think apathy is going to be a big issue. They'll just vote green instead. I, I actually suspect that for Labour, apathy is actually what's going to kill them, or what risks killing them. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, this is what I was trying to say in the column, is that, you know, great parties need great causes, which is a quote from my colleague John McTurnan in the UK. And 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 it's true. I think when you say, what do progressives do? Well, I think I think Chris Hipkins tried to do it at the beginning. The back to basic stuff felt, it had an energy behind it. It's like we're going to, and this has mm. been the problem. He doesn't know whether he's continuity or change. Is he continuity of the Jacinda years or is he change? Back to basics was change, right? So he was going to go, right, we're chucking a whole bunch of stuff on the bonfire and we're going to go back to basics and we're going to do what you want us to do. Did a little bit of that, but not much. Not enough to really get a change message across. So I think, you know, that that sense of having a grand cause is missing. And and that's why I, I use, I'm sort of thinking to myself, it's like we've gone from kind of hope and change to, mm. you know, pre- perhaps just a biscuit. Tim Tam, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't feel very Tim Tam's an, an appalling Australian invention. It's a We know that it's a chocolate macaroon or a homemade <laughs> uh, Afghan biscuit, or conceivably uh, an Anzac. It's not completely out of, the, out, of, out of the question that Labor could start to get that coalition that I talk about of, you know, the sort of the, the, the working class voters 
settlers, the pioneers, the social liberals, the prospectors, the lower middle class aspirational voters, they could still do stuff that brings people together. But listening to your interview with the Prime Minister, Bernard, um, which was which was excellent and very revealing, that one of the things he said was, um, you know, it's that infrastructure hasn't been funded, the public sector hasn't been funded, we haven't, you know, child poverty was still terrible. It's like, and who's been uh, the government? Uh, yes, I don't think you can get away with that message. I think you've got to have something a bit Crime, more Crimes, crazy. bloody outrageous. Who's been yeah. the power for the last six years? Yeah. Um, Josie, at the risk of turning you into a co-host, which is hard enough with Bernard, um, uh, me being theor- the theoretical co-host, do you have a question that you'd like to ask Robert before we move to the skateboarding dog? Because I wonder when you mentioned common room, and biscuits, I could see Robert kind of perking up immediately. <laughs> is, there, is there a question that you would ask? Because he engages probably with academics and 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 young people who are um, mm. trying to learn more than more than the rest of us. Robert, isn't it interesting that New Zealand has won the CPTPP case against Canada, and this was a bunch of my colleagues in Labour who campaigned against the TPP for year for years, went on marches, grew stubble to look more kind of you know. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with stubble. <laughs> Even more high vis vis. I mean, and and look, TPP, and I refuse to call it CPTPP because it's virtually it's not. Two-thirds of it is exactly the same as the TPP. But isn't it interesting, Robert, that, that yep. we have – I mean, thank God we have the TPP. And we so want- you, you dressed up an assertion as a question, but carry on. Robert? <laughs> no, I, I agree with Josie. I mean, I, I, one of the interesting things I found was if you look at the WTO, which is now in decline, New Zealand took uh, a number of trading partners into trading disputes, resolution mechanism. We won seven out of seven. Oh, that's how we got apples into Australia. We mm. tried for 80 years, and then eventually we took the Australians to WCO. But there were many people uh, on the left who said that you know the WCO was a terrible encroachment on our sovereignty, whereas, in fact, you can argue the other way around. It's international institutions, whether it be the TPP or WTO, which help level the landscape with trading partners in particular mm. who are much bigger than ourselves, and we wouldn't otherwise win. So this is an interesting thing. And one of the um, gr- great opportunities now in this contest between China and the United States is for New Zealand to pull China into the TPP as much to try and get the states in. That I would be an interesting. I think we should, we, we, we should join BRICS now. BRICS. <laughs> <laughs> we put the and P into BRICS. We join everything. Like, yeah. If there's anything going, we'll try and get in. It's all, mm. it's all yeah. good. So we join shall, we, shall we move to the, to, to the skateboarding dog? It's in time order to, for the skateboarding well, dogs. But there's two things. Two, we have a, so... People have uh, asked me about the dinosaur. Oh, so Bernard will remember this dinosaur, which unfortunately broke its leg, broke its tail, moving to New Zealand more than twenty years ago. Bernard and I did a startup in London called FT Market Watch, and this is please don't tell this to anybody at the FT. But we had the dinosaur as a mascot to represent the parent company, you know, the the ancient one. And of course, they won. So, you know, as usual, we went extinct and the dinosaur survived in that case. Now, I giggled like a complete idiot before with when Bernard first started up the podcast with the skateboarding dog story. And it's from The Guardian today. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry. It's the headline is Police Called to Yoga Class Mistaken for Mass Killing. A yoga class was cut short after a member of the public called the police to report a mass killing after seeing several people lying on the floor. Participants in the class, which was being held at the Seascape Cafe inside the North Sea Observatory at Chapel St. Lins in Skegness, 
were in the midst of meditation when officers turned up on Wednesday night. Someone had reported a mass killing. If anyone heard the massive police sirens in Chapel St. Leonard's, please be assured they were on their way to the observatory after someone had reported a mass killing, having seen several people lying on the floor, which actually turned out to be the yoga class in meditation. Well, I have to say, have you tried the down dog? It feels yeah. a bit masculine. <laughs> I'm drinking a down dog right now. Uh, yep. No, this yeah, is... Boom, um, boom. Yeah, it's, it's very good. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, no, so- no, thank you very much, Bernard. And especially, thank God, I think we need co-host, co-host now. And then our executive producer, Simon, in uh, Bonn. Jesus, we're getting professional. Oh, yeah. No, it's wonderful. Thank you very much, Robert Patman. Thank and you. Joseph Bagani. Thank you. Peter Bale in Hoon Bay. It's been another cracking episode of The Hoon. Kaki Tano. We'll see you all next week. See Bye-bye. you. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Bye.